are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. My name is Josh Gray. I have the privilege of being the lead servant, and we're diving into a new series called Essentials. And we're going to look at the essentials of being a Christ follower. And we're going to try and look at it from a different, a different lens and a different angle the best that we can. But if you're like, oh, well, I know all this. I got all this figured out. Awesome. This would be great review. It's like being a coach and you're like, I know how to shoot free throws. I shot free throws before. I don't need to practice that. Guess what they do every year? Shoot free throws. Guess what they do in all the other sports? The basics. You got to get in a stance, an athletic stance, not this, right? And so we want to go back to that. And so one of the essentials of us as Christ followers is we have this, this book called the Bible, And this book has a lot of foundations for us. I want to share a little bit of something that came to you. I've rewritten the sermon a couple times since I've had some time. And there was something on my trip that impacted me um, in reference to this sermon. And so I want you to take a look at this picture. The Apollo Oracle at Didyma. This is in Turkey. This is about uh, 10 miles away from Miletus which is where Paul uh, gave his last kind of uh, talk to the elders at the church of Ephesus. And let me tell you a little bit about this temple. It's been around since about 600 BC. It was destroyed and rebuilt. The structure we see now is about 300 BC. It's the fourth largest temple in the Greek world. It's 168 feet wide. It's 358 feet long. There's 120 columns. Those columns right there are 64, 65 feet tall, and the diameter is six and a half feet. Each one of those stones is six and a half feet in diameter. And there was 120 of them, and then they put a roof on top of that. There was a 10-mile road called the Sacred Way built from Miletus to this temple. And they would have processions for 10 miles and when I talk about a road, this isn't like this road was resurfaced multiple times in the pain, painful process of resurfacing a road. And in, in, in biblical times, was, that was rough. People died. Ten miles. So let's say we put a temple over in Pullman and let's call it ten, even though it's only eight. And we're going to all get together and we're going to go down this road together so we can go to this temple for one reason. We want to hear from God. Little G. We want, to, we want so bad to hear from a God that we're going to walk 10 miles. That we're going to bring our best offerings and we're going to sacrifice on an, on an altar in hopes that this God of Apollo will answer us. Now you can only ask a yes or no question. And sometimes it takes a while. Maybe your question doesn't move. Would we all have questions for God? A yes or no question? How many people have a yes or no question for God? Okay. It's going to take a while, guys. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to need to entertain you around this place. So we're going to have chariot races off to the side so you can be entertained while you're waiting on your answer from this God. Temple after temple after every place we went to. Here's the temple for this. And here's the temple for this. And here's the temple for this. We're going to build something awesome so we can worship it. 
We're going to build something great so we can worship it rather than the creator who gave us the materials, who gave us the mind, who gave us the intellect to build something amazing. All of this to hear from a fake God. From the beginning of time, we've had questions about creation and the creator. If you didn't even see the Bible and we were, you didn't have your own multiple printed copies and you went outside 2,200 years ago and you looked up at all the stars, man, I am small. What is going, where did those come from? Look at the beauty. Turkey's a beautiful country. You could close your eyes and open them and think you were in Western Montana somewhere. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And you could stop and just be like, wow, this is beautiful. How did this come to be? So innately in your heart, whether it's a higher power or whatever it is, we are innately designed to think that there is something bigger, something greater, something more than us that we would want to find, that we would want to understand what it is. And our God is different. Our God provided the sacrifice. Our God left us some amazing gifts. One of them, which is essential to be a Christ follower, is his very word, the Bible. Others go to temples to worship. We have the text. 66 books from over 35 different authors written over a span of 1,500 years on three different continents that tell an overarching story of restoration for you and me and for all of God's people. So how do we trust this story? Do we have a good book or books? You may have heard this statement before. Well, you know, the Bible says, and how many people outside this room don't even care what the Bible says? Yeah. Don't take the time to investigate it. Don't take the time to understand it. Don't take the, like, nah, it means nothing to them, right? If you're not a Christ follower, or if you're a Jew and you've got the Torah, but outside of that, the rest of the world, they have their books too. So why does this book matter? Why is it special? Why is it different? We say that the Bible is the word of God. And since we kind of have a lot writing on this point, maybe we should know about it. So here's what our church says about the Bible. This is on our, in our statement of faith and our partnership agreement. We think that the Bible is God's word to us. It was written to certain people at certain places in certain times for certain purposes. It is for all of humanity that wants to accept it. Human authors, under supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote it. It is a supreme source of truth for Christian beliefs and living. Because it is God-inspired, it is truth without any mixture of error. And then we go to the scientific things, where we're like, well, what about this? And that's where we need to understand the Bible. 
That's where we need to understand the Bible and its context. That's where we need to understand what are the literary genres of the Bible. That's why we can't look at it as a scientific textbook, even though it does amazing things with science. Because it's a narrative. It's poetry. It's so many things. It's so much more than the mind can conceive. That's why we can spend a lifetime studying it and be mastered by the Bible. We don't get to master it. It does not serve, it is not beneath us and we got to push this down, make it understand, make it say what I want it to say to prove my great intellect. But it is here to master me. I like that. Who said amen? Amen. So it's essential to be a Christ follower. Even in the text, Psalm, uh, Psalm 105, let's dive in here. Oh, there you go. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. All your words are true. All your, uh, all your righteous laws are eternal. So did they have the, the New Testament when that was written? No. But God's word is eternal. Matthew 5 17 says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus talking. I have not come to abolish, abolish the, them, but to fulfill them. You know, there's 613 fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Somebody wrote something years and years and years beforehand, and then it's fulfilled. Do you know that they used to, to find cities? We were in Colossae, which they haven't excavated yet. We were standing on top of what they're going to be excavating for the book of Colossians, right? They used, like, archaeologists use the Bible to find stuff. And it's really, really, really accurate about where things are. Goes on to say, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus talked about the law, he fulfilled what was happening in the Older Testament. And we just got done with our Timothy series. Uh, and just in the interest of time here, uh, verse 15 talked about how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise. Oh, well, there's an idea. Does God want you to be dumb? Does he want you to rely on other men and other people all the time? Just to, oh, well, you tell me what it says. I can't figure it out. Or do we do it as a community? And dive into God's word together. Not be intimidated, but go there, serve and, and, and go there with a humble heart to know that you have an amazing mind that can understand some amazing things. We have not mined all of the knowledge out of this text. Even though we're in the information age and we got it all figured out, there is still stuff that God is still revealing to the smartest, study, the smartest scholars in the world. And in about 40 years, we're going to get to know more about it. It's limitless. He says, holy scriptures, uh, these, uh, these holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in, in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know what you are? You're a, if, you're, if you've accepted and you're a Christ follower, you are a servant of God. And you know what he has a desire to do? It's to equip you. And he doesn't equip you through some fast-talking pastor from a stage. He equips you by giving the very word of God that you get to read too all week long and study and understand and have revelation and have God speak to you and change your heart and mold you. You don't need some mouthpiece. 
You don't need to fan, fan follow every awesome preacher. That, that's cool that we have all that technology, but don't spend your time always listening to somebody else's sermon about something else. Crack it open yourself. What does God want to reveal to you? Take ownership of the text. Peter even knew that this was coming, that we were going to be like, well, what about, let's just, you know, there's lots of things happening here. I'm sure, how do we know it's accurate? Second Peter, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, through, though, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who can help you discern what's in the text? The Holy Spirit. What gift did Jesus, he said, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave you with something. What did he leave you? Where is the church? Where is the temple of God? Was it, is it in that giant building? Is it in some other giant building somewhere else? Or does the temple of God actually reside in your very own heart and spirit? And how are we stewarding the temple of God? How are we feeding the temple that God has put inside of us? So this is some of what the Bible says about the Bible, but you can't prove the Bible with the Bible. And that's not what I'm trying to do today. You can do all your research. You know how they haven't stopped trying to prove that the Bible is not the word of God? That that's, there's, still a, there's still a case going on against that. But it gets harder and harder every time when it's more and more accurate all the time. And why is that? Why do you want to get rid of this? Why does our society not need this in your life? Don't you have a better idea on how you should live your life than the one who's created you? Oh yeah, the word Bible, it means scrolls or books. So when you say you have a Bible, that's what it means means the scrolls or the books. Let me ask you this question. Would you die for a lie? Would you die for a lie? Would you have your families eliminated from time for a lie, to perpetuate a lie? I would not. question I was asked as we were sitting in what they believe to be Philip's tomb. They found his tomb. They found this, they found this, uh, uh, this kind of dedicated space to Philip that was giant. And then you walked down and there was a church and then there was a tomb they believe was Philip's. And he helped convert one of these. Uh, uh, he had a conversion of a pretty important lady and they didn't like that. And church tradition says that he was... Um, drug through the streets of the city and that his girls were not treated well at all in front of him if he would just renounce what he said and say that the text is not what it is and say that, that God is not who he said he is. And he, and he, didn't, he, didn't, re, he didn't recant his story. Would you die for a lie? The disciples so believed in what they had experienced with Jesus that they were willing to die for this truth. Die to keep the gospel message alive. We have a good book. People died so you and I could trust the story. The Newer Testament has 27 books. 
And these, these gospels and these letters help finish the overarching story that started in Genesis and ends in Revelation. They introduce the long-awaited Messiah. Again, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 35 authors, 1,500 years, three different continents, all about a God who is for you and for the restoration of this world. The Bible has been analyzed and criticized more than any other work in the history of the world. You know, they were analyzing and criticizing the Bible shortly in like 300, 400, 500. This is forever. This has been a forever persecution against God's word. And it's not done. Why is that? Why do people want to destroy this letter? Let me ask you a question. Think about the person that you admire, that you think is, is wise and that has given you great advice in your life. What if they took the time to write out, just to pour their hearts out, to give you, they knew they were going to be gone and they wanted to give you all of the advice that they could possibly give you. They were going to be gone from this world. And they started writing you a letter and they're like, all right, Josh, here's how you handle your finances. Josh, here's how you operate in your marriage. Josh, here's how you treat your children and how you would treat others. Josh, let me give you some more. And they just poured their heart out. Would you just read it once? Got it, thanks. Would you ever have to go back to it? Would you have to study it over and over and over and over again? Would you ever reference it? Would you hold it in a special place? Would you want to pass it on to maybe your kids? Your father loves you. He wrote you a love letter. It's a long one. But you're here for a long time. People of great intellect have sought out to, out, uh, to, out to prove this is false, and they've failed, and they still are trying. Empires have tried to destroy it. In 303 BC, an edict from Rome came to destroy all sacred writings. As a matter of fact, if you were found with any of the sacred writings, you would immediately be murdered. And this is, for some folks, a coffee table ornament. God preserved his word for the world to hear his message. Not just in paper, but to hear it through you. To hear it through action. And men and women have died horrible deaths to keep this story alive. I hope it's a good story. Let me ask you again, would you die for a lie? Would you sacrifice your family for a lie? I would not. Here's a little history about the New Testament. There's over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,800 completed or fragmented Greek manuscripts, 10,000 in Latin, 9,300 manuscripts in various other languages. 24,000. You know why this is important? The earliest manuscripts date within 25 years of the event. So just rewind. If you're trying to date and understand any historical documents that are old documents, the one that we might know the most about is Homer's Iliad. And the way that they would look at text, 
scholars, not people who believe in the Bible, but like, okay, can we try, what is this? Is that you look at a couple things. How many manuscripts are there? Because this is not the printing press. To write out 1,189 chapters or to write out 27 books on papyrus or whatever, whatever type of skin that they're working off of, this is a lot of work. If you were a scribe, you, were, you, were, you, you knew some stuff. And so how many early manuscripts do we have? Well, we have 24,000 plus early manuscripts. What are the, what's the dating of the earliest manuscripts? Oh, within 25 years of the actual events that happen in the New Testament. So what does that mean? Well, these are eyewitness accounts. These are people who saw something. Like how many of you and I saw George Washington do the things he did in the Revolutionary War? Nope, me neither. I wasn't alive. But somebody did, and somebody documented it, and somebody wrote it down, and it's true. It's fact. It's history. Same thing happens with the text. It's just almost like because it's so far away, we're like, oh, well, I'm not sure. Do you realize that if one of the, of the apostles would have recanted his story, that's all they needed was just one person to recant their story that they could start fittering away the New Testament? But none of them did. So you have these 24,000 manuscripts that are dated 25 years, uh, the earliest ones are 25 years after the events actually happened. The next, most, the next best book we have in history is Homer's Iliad. It has 643 manuscripts, and the earliest one that they talk about happened 500 years after the events. No eyewitnesses. We got a good book. We have a really, really good book from, a, from like a scholar aspect of it. From an aspect of, is this real? Did this actually happen? Yes, it did. So that's great for the New Testament. Well, what about the Old Testament? Well, that was interesting because until 1946, our uh, oldest copies of the Old Testament were like 1200 AD. 11, 1200 AD. And then something happened that was super awesome in 1946. It's called the discovery of what they say the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Let me tell you about these Dead Sea Scrolls. The oldest known manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible were 10th century AD before they found these. The Dead Sea Scrolls included over 225 copies of biblical books that date up to 1200 years earlier. They had manuscripts of the Older Testament, 200 years, that were written 200 years before Jesus was on the earth. And they found them in Qumran in a cave. These range from small fragments to complete, completed scrolls of the prophet Isaiah and every book in the Hebrew Bible except for Esther and Nehemiah. And they show that the books of the Jewish Bible were known and treated as sacred writings before the time of Jesus. We have a good book. Well, some of us may be thinking, so what? Cool, I already knew that. Maybe you have questions like, well, why should I read it? How is this going to change my life? What's the purpose of this book? What is the purpose of this book? What do you think its purpose is to you? Is it a burden? Just heavy, just a restrictive thing, just trying to restrict my life and just make life hard on me? Or is it for my benefit and for my blessing? I'm going to let you wrestle with that question this week. 
I want you to ask yourself that question when you crack open the Bible. God, what is the purpose of this? Which version should I read? What's the right one? That's where our Greek mind goes. What's the correct, accurate one? Well, of course, it's the old King James version with the these and thous and those and this. From the 1500s that, you know, I get lost and stuck when I'm like, wait, these and those, thous? No. Every, transla- every, um, every version is a translation, right? They're doing the best that they can as they understand that. But we have this thing called the Holy Spirit. And you ask the Holy Spirit to help you discern what God has in his word, and he's going to do that. Brad Gray, uh, who's, who's a, one of my, my mentors and a guy that we reference quite a bit, uh, at the bottom of your notes, you're going to see two links there. Now, this is not playtime on these notes. I challenge every one of you sitting in here to go to these links this week. Start with the Bible Project. It's super cartoonish. It's awesome. And there's roughly 19 episodes, and they're six minutes long of cartoons. They're going to walk you through the basics of, of the Bible and how to read the Bible. And if you are like an expert scholar and you know all those things, this is going to benefit you. If you just kind of have played around with God's word a little bit, this is going to benefit you. If you don't even know what I'm talking about, but you like cartoons, this is going to benefit you. I'm challenging every one of you in here. I don't, you don't have to do it all. You don't have to do all 19 episodes in one week. I mean, that would be like, whoo, it's 19 times six. That's 60. That's, that's, whew, that's like almost a movie. And I know nobody in here is going to watch a movie this week on Netflix. And we're not going to spend two hours being entertained on something. No, I challenge it. Do one a day. Take some notes. Now, 44% of the Bible is narrative. It's in story form. Wow, I didn't know that. I challenge you to do that. And then there's a, another link to Brad Gray's uh, ebook, which is, it's super, it's like 37 pages, not long. But it talks about the number one mistake that most people make when they read the Bible. And I loved it and experienced it because understanding the Bible, who it was written to, what its purpose is for, and why we do it uh, kind of makes a difference in how we understand it. Understanding context when you're standing at Laodicea and you can see Heropolis where they have hot springs and lukewarm water. And then you can see six miles away Colossae where there's the water that's running down from this mountain that has snow on it nine months out of the year that's cold and you should neither be hot nor be cold, but you're here. Kind of makes a difference when you're trying to understand that. That's text. So I want you, I'm challenging everyone in this room. I'm challenging you. It's not your pastor's job to, to help you own everything about the Bible. You can, you're not going to get something that awesome in 25 minutes here at this church. You take ownership of it. You read this love letter that's to you that cares for you, that cares for your heart, that cares for your spirit, that cares about your family that cares about how you treat each other. It's, it's here. It's, nobody has to explain it to you. The Holy Spirit will. And then you can read it in community. Hey, hey Gary, you know what I read? This thing was so, it was, I gotta tell you about it. Let's do it together. And then Gary gets excited about it and he's on fire and he sets somebody else on fire for the text. And then all of a sudden we become people of the book. 
Not to know about the book. Well, that's interesting information. But to have, have it internally. I want to finish with this. You guys are going to read in your life groups, you're going to read from Deuteronomy 6, 6 4. But this is a question that was asked. A rabbi asked this question. He says, so uh, when they talk about God's word, and it says that in this particular piece of text, it says that, that have God's word upon your heart. Like, stack it. Like, it's on my heart-ish. Wouldn't it make more sense if it was in my heart? Why does God say to put God's word upon your heart? Well, maybe you're like me and you're not mature enough to receive everything that God has. But you can stack it. And when your heart starts to soften, and when your heart becomes less hard, you become more able to receive God's word and it falls into your heart. See, if I, only, if I only read what I'm ready to hear, then how will I know what else I needed to know when, I'm, when my heart softens? And so we keep putting it upon our heart. Oh, I'm in Leviticus. That's <laughs> okay. Put it upon your heart. Because as, as your heart softens, God's, God's word will be in it and you'll become more teachable and more aware and it will fall into its proper place. You may not remember everything that you read in the Bible, but it's kind of like eating. It nourishes your soul. Do you remember what you ate uh, seven meals ago? 10 meals ago, 15 meals ago? But did it nourish your body? Well, God's word will nourish your soul even if you don't remember everything about it in its due time. Go ahead and get your communion elements ready. Uh, We take communion as a family together here. And so if you are a Christ follower, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're going to do this in a minute. I want to close with this. This is about a journey of discovery. This is a lifetime, a lifetime work that was built on the blood of people who died to help us have it today. In all of our many different forms, you know, in Brad's ebook, he talks about the Bibles that he uses, in case you're curious. I, I preach and teach a lot out of the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. And it's got the text on the top and then half of its notes underneath because I want to understand the context. I'm not saying this is the correct Bible to preach out of. Uh, the correct one is the one that you want to read and you want to study, but this is a good one. If you use a children's Bible with pictures and it changes your life, that's even awesome. That's, that's fantastic. But there's no finishing of God's word, only beginnings. Make a commitment to be people of the text, not just casual weekend churchgoers. Don't just be aware of God's word, but put it on your heart. Be intentional about it. Jesus Christ was very, very intentional about his sacrifice. And we should be intentional. It's not casual. Intentional about God's word. It's essential as Christ's followers. Let us be very intentional about his word and what he did.
in his word. It says the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and when he uh, had broken it, he gave thanks. I was thinking about that. He gave thanks. Thanks, God. I'm getting ready to be crucified. I'm getting ready to die for all of humanity, but I'm going to give thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and you drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's proclaim him. Father God, I just ask that you're, um, that, that the Holy Spirit is just upon this room. It's upon every person in this room. The Bible isn't too big. It's not too scary for anybody in here. It's your love letter. Let us, give us the, the courage to want to, to understand your love for us. Lord, give us the courage to just make a decision that we're going to get on the journey. The journey of new beginnings as you reveal to each person in here how you feel about them. What you think of them. Your care for them. Help us to become a church that's passionate about worshiping you. Help us to become a church that's passionate about your words, not just on Sunday. That that would be the talk we have as we walk in the lobbies. That we're talking about your word. We're talking about things we're discovering because we are so enamored by you and your letter to us, Lord. Your story. We can trust your story. We can trust you. You are a good and faithful God. Help us to do that in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.